Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, we're back. I guess you could say. It's uh, part two of two. This is the second uh, concluding part of our two-part series on America yeah, for the 4th gotta, of July. you got to say, hey, and welcome to the podcast, because this is uh, the beginning of part two. Yeah, but we're technically in the middle. But, all right. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You feel better? Yes. All right. So this is uh, picking up where we left off. We still don't know where we cut off, so <laughs> our guess is as good as yours, and vice versa. Awesome. This is Stuff You Should Know About America from the Sirius XM Studios in New York City. Now more from Josh and Chuck. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Jill. That was as great as I hoped it would be, Joe. And Jill. That was something. I, when he told me, he's like, we're going to need another mic and a VIP seat because I got someone doing footnotes. Like, <laughs> what? What does that mean? And now I know. And knowing is half the battle. That's what I hear. <laughs> so, Chuck, um... I don't think we could do a July 4th show reasonably and not talk about fireworks, right? That'd be a big ripoff. I mean, uh, I, I don't think there's any better way to enjoy a fireworks display than to know the chemistry that's going behind it, right? Yeah. I feel like it takes that, that kind of understanding. <laughs> well, whether you like it or not, we're going to teach you this uh, right now, right? Yeah, man, you're the expert on this, but I do like... Well, I'll chime in. Go ahead. <laughs> it's it's going to be like I that. I like the name of the Chinese uh, manual. Well, you take the name of the Chinese manual. First, let me set you up. Okay. okay? Um, so uh, fireworks are based on black powder, which has been around since at least 1044. Uh, and it was uh, discovered in China, right? Um, it was either the result of some alchemists who were looking for a, uh, a way to preserve youth or a hapless chef who accidentally discovered it. Can I stop you there? Please. Because I've, the first one doesn't make any sense to me. The second one does. I get it. Chinese chef making bananas foster or something. Right. Boom. And all of a sudden there's, there's gunpowder. But <laughs> how does gunpowder figure into trying to make yourself look younger is what I want to know. I, I don't know. I have no answer for that. I, charcoal, I guess. Okay. That's silly the potassium nitrate, which is saltpeter, and then sulfur. I think if you applied those things separately to your face <laughs> yeah. and didn't wash them off well enough. And just don't light it. Right. Well, if it, you know, if you got too close to a fire, then kaboom. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that makes sense now. But well, those are the three ingredients in black powder, right? That's right. And uh, I wanted to point out the Chinese, uh, we know it, it has been around since 1044 because it was in the collection of the most important military techniques. Right. That's what they called their book. It is a good book name. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. So, um, however they discovered it, um, it, it, now I don't know if they understood what was going on back then. Now we have a pretty good understanding of what, what's going on with black powder, right? Yeah. So you've got um, potassium nitrate, which is saltpeter, which is um, an oxidizer, right? Yeah. That's like 75% of the mix. That's the bulk. 15% is charcoal, which is fuel, and then you've got sulfur, uh, which is a reducing agent, and that's the last 10%, right? That's right. So you mix them all together. You uh, introduce flame, which ignites it, and all of a sudden the potassium nitrate starts releasing all this oxygen, which feeds the charcoal, right, binds to it, and creates the light and the heat that you see in fireworks, right? Boom. Right. Or not yet with the boom, uh, we're, right? We're almost there. Okay. Um, and then you have the oxygen from the uh, potassium nitrate also 
uh, reacting with the sulfur to create this uh, explosive force as CO2 and nitrate, uh, nitrogen are produced, and they expand. Right. And that's the boom? Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, uh, I missed my cue. Uh, it was okay. You just hit it early. It Here, try it again. Really Point at okay. me. Uh, so you've got the, uh, the sulfur and the oxygen binding together, creating CO2 and nitrogen, uh, and that's where you get the explosive force. Boom. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> That was good. You wouldn't think it'd be that hard. Um, and that's that's the basis of um, fireworks, right? Yeah, that's the basis of the firecracker. And so now we move on to sparklers. Which is pretty much the same thing. It pretty much is. But uh, what you do with a sparkler is you have that black powder, add a little sugar, add a little water, and you get something called, you know, sort of like a slurry. Mm-hmm. You dip your stick into it, mm-hmm. as it were, and uh, metal stick. And because everything's spread out, it's not going to be, like, as volatile and create a big flash, bang, boom, it's over. It's spread out because it's mixed with a slurry. And you add a little, uh, what, metal to that? Yeah, like some sort of metal dust or shavings, and then that heats up and jumps off and becomes incandescent, and there's a sparkler. What's the noise for that? Okay, there's no sound effect for a sparkler. Okay, there you go. There's a sparkler. And the reason this is important is because uh, when you go out on the 4th of July, wherever you do that here in New York, I imagine they're everywhere, and you see the big pyrotechnic uh, display, it is really just versions of sparklers and firecrackers. Right. The sparkler and the firecracker are the basis of all other fireworks, right? That's right. So these aerial displays, it's just a shell, which is like a ball filled with black powder, and then little pellets of... um, sparkler composition that they call stars, right? Yeah. And in the middle of that is a firecracker, and you use a lifting charge to send it into the air, and the lifting charge ignites the fuse. <laughs> nice. And then when it, when it hits a, a certain altitude and that, that fuse goes off and the firecracker in the middle blows up, it ignites the black powder, right? Yep. So there's your explosion, and that in turn sends the, uh, the pellets, the stars scattered, lights them, and there's your firework. That's it. As you say, bada bing, bada boom, Bon Jovi. Right. There's <laughs> your fireworks. It does say that. And you can get fancy with it if you want to cobble these together. You uh, cobble the shells together, add something called a breaking charge, and that is when you see, like, the one shell explode, and then that breaking charge sets off the other ones, and that's where you get the cool little things that everyone oohs and ahs at. Right. And then you add some uh, chemical salts for color. That's right. Like, uh, what do we have, blue for copper? Blue is copper. Stronium is red. Yeah. And then stronium and copper uh, make purple. Wow. Yeah. Look at you. Uh, I got sodium for yellow, calcium for orange, aluminium for my British friends uh, is silver, and barium is green. Pretty neat. Right. So now when you're watching the fireworks display, you can curse us because you're yes. sitting there thinking about the sulfur as a reducing agent. What's that smell? Oh, that's the reducing agent. Josh. <laughs> just give me a beer and shut up. Exactly. So that's, uh, that's fireworks, right? But, but that's just like fireworks when they go right. That's, that's the optimum of, of what can happen with firework, what we just said, right? But we live in la-la land in a lot of ways, and fireworks don't always go well. No. Right, so um, we have our friend Hallie Hegland uh, here to talk to us about um, when fireworks don't go so well, right? That's right. Hallie apparently has a pretty true story for us. So everybody, welcome Hallie. All right, let's see. That's right. I was gonna. Is this good? Should I lower this? Or 
I don't even know who I'm talking to. You can to. probably <laughs> you can probably angle it down. Okay. With, this is the highlight yeah. of the show. Yeah, never let it be said that um, Josh and Chuck don't teach the controversy because that's why I'm here. Um, all right. Well, I have some facts and figures in my presentation, so I may need to refer to my notes. Um, but I'm sure that you've all seen the public service videos that local news stations roll out around this time of year. You know, there's like um, a, uh, a fake adorable child posed in um, a field of grass and, uh, you know, obviously celebrating something because they're wearing something really nice from the local JCPenney's. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a mannequin that's completely faceless um, and yet human-like because they've put um, a straw sun, sun hat on the head to remind you, like, be careful. This fake child is sensitive to the sun. <laughs> so, you know, so the, so, the, so the mannequin is posed in, like, some position of youthful curiosity, and all of a sudden, boom, you know, a Roman candle blows its head off. <laughs> and in the blink of an eye, there's nothing but, like, a cloud of smoke and lime dust and um, a singed straw hat 200 feet away in the grass. So um, this is uh, what we all see every day, you know, the, the hazards of fireworks. And if it's a, if it's a, a low-budget sort of news station, they actually just blow up a watermelon. <laughs> but either way, they teach you the havoc that fireworks can wreak upon our nation's children or our nation's fruit. Yeah. So if you don't think... Fireworks are dangerous. Can I ask you a question? Okay. Since 1998, how many fireworks factories do you think have burned down? According to my not very thorough research, it's uh, five. Okay. So Denmark, Holland, the UK, England, and the Philippines. So here, let me get my numbers. If you don't think they're dangerous, just ask the... 1,250 1, people in Enshade, Holland, left homeless after 900 kilograms, which I did the math, it's 1,980 pounds of fireworks were accidentally detonated at their local factory. Or talk to the people of Cavite in the Philippines who felt the ground shake nearly two miles away from the explosion when a demonstration at their local firecracker factory went wrong. Or the 2,000 people evacuated from ceased Denmark when factory workers accidentally dropped a container of fireworks, somehow causing it to ignite. I watched a lot of Internet videos in my research, and I will say if you have to witness a human tragedy firsthand, um, a fireworks factory exploding is definitely the coolest <laughs> you are going to come by. I mean, it's like cooler than the... Disney World fireworks display, I'd say. Yeah. Um, did you know that while celebrating Chinese New Year in 2009, it only took one stray firecracker to burn down Beijing's 30-story luxury Mandarin hotel? Now, to be fair, the Chinese are an incredibly efficient people, so what took them one firework would probably take us, like, at least a box, okay? Um, in the United States in 2010... The Consumer Product Safety Commission 
reported three firework-related deaths, which is up 50% from 2009 when only two firework-related deaths were reported. And I don't expect the trend to turn around because, let's face it, the economy is going to hell. This 4th of July, Americans are going to want nothing more than to just throw back a six-pack and just sparkler the world away, okay? Okay. So maybe the cold, hard statistics don't touch you. Maybe something more anecdotal will get through to you. So I have witnessed the brutality of the firework firsthand. Let me take you back to Denver, Colorado, 1991, the 5th of July. I am about to turn 10, and my older brother, Eric, is 14. And you should know in Denver, there is about a week right around the 4th of July where a summer drought and a child stockpile of fireworks both simultaneously reach their peak. (laughs) Um, So we had really hoarded this incredible stash. I mean, we had every kind of firework. We had snaps, we had sparklers, we had bottle rockets, we had Roman candles, we had tanks, we had snakes, we had bird cages, and of course we had smoke bombs. So um, we had sort of burned through most of our reserves on the driveway the night before. Uh, My father has all these pictures that he took of us that night, and we're like crouched next to the garage door, and I'm wearing this Mexican Puebla dress that my mom bought for me in Puerto Vallarta. (laughs) And my brother's wearing his hot pink jams. (laughs) And you can see we're just sort of mesmerized by this black cat screech and scream fountain that we've just ignited. And... uh, you know, there's like a deadness in my eyes and something about uh, how I never brush my hair that I'm really like spot on for Drew Barrymore and the Firestarter posters. <laughs> and um, my brother just keeps begging, like, just one more, just one more, like, like he's going to go into withdrawal if we stop lighting fireworks. So what I'm saying is I feel like looking at this picture, you could tell we were already struggling with some pretty serious demons. <laughs> The next day, I was in a fog all day. You know, despite a full night of sleep, I was exhausted after our explosives bender. And so uh, sometime in the afternoon, I, uh, I went to the basement to find a cool place, and I was watching A Current Affair, if you guys remember that. And I, and I must have drifted off because I, I remember I was awakened by a sound of sirens. Now, uh, my brother... I didn't know this at the time, was upstairs with three other boys from our block on the street. And um, they were playing this game that uh, we played in our neighborhood all the time. I really hope no children are listening to this. And if you are, this is a really bad game, so don't play this game. It was sort of, um, you know, it was um, a spinoff of Ding Dong Ditchum. So one person would go stand on the porch um, poised to ring the doorbell, while another person would stand in the street with a smoke bomb. So as soon as the smoke bomb was lit in the street, the person on the porch would ring the doorbell and then run away, and the person in the street would throw the smoke bomb. So ideally, your neighbor opens their door to a cloud of smoke, and they think, like, a wizard just rang the doorbell. (laughs) And then they got really shy or something. (laughs) But Now, let me remind you again that Denver was a tinderbox at that time of year. So my brother and his friends probably should have skipped the house uh, across the street, the Forstadt's house, which was flanked by these two huge juniper trees. 
uh, actually historic trees, we later found out. They were planted by the then governor, Roy Romer's uh, father-in-law, and uh, about 50 years prior. And every so often, the, uh, the Romers would pile in their car and just drive through the neighborhood to check out how their trees were doing. <laughs> because that's really what people in Colorado do for fun. They go and check out trees that they planted a long time ago. So it was actually my brother who threw the offending smoke bomb, and the smoke bomb was blue. So he he lit it, and he aimed at the porch, but his aim was off. And so instead of landing on the porch, it landed in the juniper tree on the right. And everyone just sort of sat there stunned as the smoke billowing from the tree turned from blue to light blue to gray, and then you just heard this crackling sound. And it didn't take long for the, fi- uh, for the fire in one tree to spread to the adjacent tree, and then to the roof of the Forstadt's house, and then to the roof of the neighbors of the Forstadt's house. And they just sort of stood there stunned, like, how could this game have possibly gone bad? <laughs> and my mom, actually, I was talking this morning, and she reminded me of the fact that she at some point had come out onto the porch when, we, when she saw a fire, and she just saw the kids frozen in the street, and uh, and they just looked at her and they yelled, "We don't know what to do! We don't know what to do!" But then instead of running to my house, they ran to one of the other boys' houses because the mom was way nicer, <laughs> and they hid in the bathroom while the mom called the fire department. So, uh, you know, after all, there were uh, there were the two trees were totally destroyed, and there was serious damage to two roofs and also the Forstadt's car, which had been marked in the driveway. So that night, um, everyone assembled for sort of a disciplinary meeting on our side porch, which happened to offer a prime view of the charred, scorched earth across the street. And, uh, you know, it was all the boys and all the parents, and I sort of tiptoed out and was just standing on the edge watching everything. And uh, all the parents thought that the boys were just staring down because uh, they were so shamed and sort of uh, in shame and deference when really it was just nobody wanted to look up because if they looked sideways, they would just burst out laughing. I mean, the, the, it, it was so pathetic how this Forsyth house looked. It, was, it looked like um, one unlucky house on like a beautiful block had just been struck by lightning. <laughs> and as they discussed uh, what kind of work the boys could do to pay off the Forsyth Forsyth's insurance deductible. I listen, and, and I really, I really had no impulse to laugh because I thought about how easily that sorry smoke bomb toss could have been mine. And so, as they laid out chores that they could possibly do, I just thought, "There, but for the grace of God, go I." <laughs> I feel safer now. That's a true story, right? Yeah. Yeah. She said he, she talked to her mom. Oh well, that makes it true, right? So, um, Chuck? I used to blow stuff up like crazy. Did you? Yeah, like uh, model cars. Any guys ever strap like bottle rockets to their model cars and try and make them? The guys are out there like, oh, yeah, dude. <laughs> Still do. Did you ever um, break the sticks off of uh, bottle rockets and light them and just throw them and see where they go? Just see what happened? That's I what, did. That's what I did. <laughs> Actually, I would, I, me and my buddy uh, Chuck built this. Uh, I had a friend named Chuck growing up. Uh, <laughs> either that or I was a very sad child. Uh, I built, we built, uh, bottle rocket guns 
in his little wood shop. He had like his dad made the little rubber band guns and sold them at fairs and stuff. Wow. So we modified those to hold uh, bottle rockets, and you drop it in and throw the little flap down and shoot them at each other. So what what kind of modifications are required specifically? Well, we we used the stock of the gun. It was like a rifle, uh-huh. and then we basically just uh, got rid of the rubber band part and made a box with a uh, flap on top, like a, a door, because you didn't want it to, you know, shoot back at you. Right. And so you would light it, put it in there, and we kind of dug out a groove so it would go straight. Mm-hmm. We put a lot of thought into this. And, uh, you know, you would light it and, and shoot at your friend. Bada and, boom, bada bing. Bada bing, Bon Jovi. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, did you patent that? No, we should have, actually. Yeah, we'll have to go home and make it. Sold one. them in Denver, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's talk American Dream, shall we? Yeah, man. The American dream as a thing. And you did uh, most of this research. And Are you, you putting of, this one on me, too? No, no, no. I'm not putting this one on you. But I'm just, uh, I noticed from your research when I looked at this, the American dream sort of has ebbed and flowed from the, its early origins. And it sort of coincides with like how the economy is doing right then. Pretty much. It's either like, yes, the American dream or, oh, it's dead. Yeah. And then it's alive again, and then it's dead. And I also noticed the American dream is either like every man for himself, and like you just do the best you can and make as much money as you can, or it's all about community and looking out for one another. And all that depends on how the economy is doing. That's right. right? Because if everybody's broke, everybody's like, yeah, of course, government spending. That's what the American dream's about. <laughs> and uh, if, if everyone's making money, then, you know, everyone turns into Patrick Bateman all of a sudden. <laughs> So let's talk about it, Chuck. Where did, where did this come from? Obviously, it was the uh, famed historian James Truslow Adams who wrote the 1931 book, The Epic of America, right? Yeah, and that's where he mentioned the American dream. But uh, earlier than that, in 1630, John Winthrop uh, gave his famous City Upon a Hill sermon to his fellow Puritan colonist. And um, he didn't use the word dream, but he did detail a vision of society where Everyone could prosper. Everyone could get ahead as long as you just team together and work together and follow the Bible. Right, exactly. But but that kind of laid out the groundwork for the American dream that in America specifically, if you worked really hard, the sky was the limit, right? That's right. Okay, so um, that was 1630 when uh, Winthrop gave that City Upon a Hill sermon. That's right. Uh, and then by 1776, when TJ sat down from June 11th to 18th, right? Yes. Um. It was a God-given inalienable right to succeed because it's in the uh, it's in the Constitution we're guaranteed the the uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That's right. Which is kind of the uh, the American dream in a nutshell. It's the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Does that what does the Statue of Liberty say? Now that's awful. I don't know that. Is is that what it says there? Now, what does it say? Something. It says like. Uh yeah, all that other stuff. People are just shouting out words. <laughs> it says welcome to Shoney's. Did you see this? <laughs> and it's not a torch, but it's a burger. Right. So um, the 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 um, Declaration of Independence really kind of gives the lift to the American dream, but it's really it becomes embodied in the 19th century. Um, there was a guy named uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, yeah. right? I, I took this as a sort of a snotty thing to say. Joe's over there laughing. Uh, yeah. uh, it might not have been a snotty thing to say, but because uh, he was French, I took it that way. Um, <laughs> he visited the United States in the 1830s, and he called this belief the charm of anticipated success. And that just sounds sort of like, like it's not real. It's just the charm. 
He's uh, British all of a sudden. Like a, like a, <laughs> <laughs> he could also be a Nazi, too. Yeah, yeah. You can do that accent. Um, it, 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 I took it as kind of like a, a pat on the head or he was charmed himself. Okay. Either way, he was, he was an outsider making an observation that the Americans over there think like they have this thing called American exceptionalism, which means there's no other country on earth like America, right? That's right. And that's what he was mentioning. And then um, I think it got another boost by uh, Henry David Thoreau. Yeah, and Walden, he really kind sure. of laid out the American dream as well. Yeah, and that was 1854. And his quote, uh, I actually like this one. Uh, if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams, and I'm going to say her dreams, let's modernize this, uh, and endeavors to live that the life he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. Right. Can you see that on like one of those posters? It says like effort, yeah. and it has that <laughs> underneath. There's like a whale's tail. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Back then, the Walden, it was like it was a guy chopping wood. Right. It was Thoreau himself, actually. Right. He was the first guy to do an inspirational poster. <laughs> it was a wood carving. So uh, that, that's the mid 18th century. Um, toward the end of the the or no the mid 19th century. I'm sorry. Yes. Toward the end of that, you had a lot of Im- immigrants coming, and uh, also a westward push. And so the American dream kind of gets laid onto these two things too. Yeah, right? it's actually written about. They use the words American dream more and more in newspapers and you know go Rags west. Riches books. Exactly. Yeah, and m- magazines, that whole kind of thing, where um, people love their rags to riches stories in the late 19th century. We still do. Right. But, I mean, they really loved them then. Okay. Really. Like, compared to today, it's like, oh. Uh, but so so everything's going and going. Uh, by the time the uh, 20th century comes around, um, the American dream is pretty much like code for upwardly mobile. That's right. right. The, the person's living the American dream. Rather than a promise to be able to try, the American dream is starting to become wealthy, like you're wealthy. Exactly. About the time of the turn of the century. And then, by the time James Truslow Adams writes his Epic of America, um, there's a lot of doubt, right? Because this is 1931. Something really big happened that kind of put a ding in the American dream. Yeah, the Depression uh, came along and destroyed a lot of these big fortunes and these people that had, you know, lived the American dream, rags to riches, uh, self-made millionaires and the like. And uh, Herbert Hoover said, you know what? Prosperity is just around the corner. And everyone said... Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> they threw rocks at him. That's right. But uh, FDR came along and did usher in a little bit of real hope after that. He did. Even even before going to war, which I think most most uh, historians kind of point to as the turning point for the American economy, was all the military spending in World War II. Sure. Um, so w- w- I guess um, Roosevelt introduces the uh, the New Deal. Right, which is again all the the government spending, social programs. So the American dream kind of becomes more of a sense of community, where America is a place where you know you can not only make your own way, but if you can't make your own way, like you're elderly or you're disabled or whatever, the community is going to take care of you. That's right. And then we go over to Europe and do Africa and Italy and the Pacific and kick tail and come back, and the suburbs are born. And then the American right. Dream is just right on this uptick again. Right. So we're on the up, uptick of the roller coaster. In the 1950s, Americans uh, at the time uh, made up 6% of the population and consumed one-third of the goods and services, which means we're doing great <laughs> because, you know, we're Americans and we're using up all this stuff, which is awesome. Right. Wages rose. Yeah. That was pretty good. Uh, affluent workers uh, moved like you said, into the suburbs, spread out. And I guess at the time that meant uh, 
things were good if you moved to the suburbs. Well, I wonder if the suburbs were kind of a turning point as well, because when the suburbs started to hit their, their stride, that's when the social strife in the 60s came along, where basically um, African-Americans said, like, hey, I'm really happy that you guys are having a great time over there, but there's this whole other part of America that's been left out so far. And uh, MLK uh, famously redefined the American dream. Yeah, he called America a dream yet unfulfilled, and he was kind of right on the money. And uh, he said that it shouldn't be about wealth. It should be about uh, Thomas Jefferson, TJ again, saying all men are created equal and give equal rights to minorities, rebuild these inner cities that are decaying, and let's eradicate hunger. And people are like, wait a minute, I just thought I I was supposed to get rich and move to the suburbs. What are you talking (laughs) about? Exactly. At the same time, their kids are doing the same thing. They're attacking them from, from, the, uh, from another side, right, waiting for them to come home from work and then jumping out of the closet maybe. <laughs> um, and uh, they, they, the, um, the, the 60s are at their peak and the 70s hit and the economy just slides down the toilet. So right? now we're Malays on the downside. Forever. So there's social strife and now there's economic strife. And at every, at every turn, the American dream is analyzed in this context, right? So, which is what we're doing. We're just following in tradition. That's right. And thankfully, another French person came along to point this out. In 1974, French historian Ingrid uh, Carlander published a book called, uh, how do you pronounce it? Lazy American. It sounds very much like Lazy American. (laughs) Uh, Wow, you really don't like the French. No, I love the French. Um, She proclaimed that the American dream was, in fact, dead and... uh, that was pretty much it. And with the, you know, the gasoline lines and the empty swimming pools and, uh, because, you know, you shouldn't put, uh, I think it was LA that suffered the drought and they were like, you know, we, we can't afford all this water for swimming pools even. Right. But luckily that was good for skateboarding. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It gave rise to skateboarding, didn't it? It did. Um, and then out of California, out of the promised land came the golden child, right? The former governor. A, a guy who came from a farm family who'd worked his way up to a star in Hellcats of the Navy. Yeah. And uh, he took over, and basically he That's said... That's Ronald Reagan, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> he said the American dream is back, baby, I think is what his words were. <laughs> I think so. And uh, his uh, deal, very uh, the very simplified version, was, hey, let's cut taxes and uh, stimulate growth. Let's reduce some of these government programs because... Uh, we want self-reliance, and that's what it makes America strong. That's what it makes America strong. <laughs> He's Italian as well. And, uh, you know, it, it, it worked to a certain degree, and America started to prosper again, but then critics came along and said, yeah, but you know what? We don't know about all this, uh, how it really helped the common man. It may have just been the rich you were helping out. And we don't really know if you cut spending. Reagan, that- Reagan went, what? <laughs> is that easy Chinese now? <laughs> so... Uh, we, we find ourselves now um, after the uh, the affluent 80s um, and the 90s. Which right? was just a party, man. Um, we, we kind of we, we have kind of this hangover now where we have all this stuff, but we also have all this debt and like reality of like what, uh, you know, just buying stuff and just consuming without producing anything. Because remember back in um, the uh, 40s or 50s, we were producing one third of the world's goods, but we were consuming that too. But we were producing as well. And then through the 80s and the 90s, we stopped producing and just started consuming. And we get to this point where this um, Harvard uh, professor named John Quelch um, pointed out that basically too many Americans have been expressing the American dream through the acquisition of stuff, right? 
True. So now everybody's getting browbeaten with the American dream. That's the point that we're at, right? Right. It's like it's greedy. Is that the point? Is that, I, I, is that what he's saying? I think he, what he's saying is it's kind of become greedy. Like it, it was originally an opportunity, right. and now it's how much stuff do you have? Right. So what he suggests we do is go back to the original James Truslow Adams ideal of the American dream, and through that, allow it to survive, right? Right. And uh, we'll finish up with a quote from Adams, uh, a social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain the fullest stature to which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are, regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. And how about that? That's right on the money. Truslow. <laughs> this is Stuff You Should Know About America from the Sirius XM Studios in New York City. Now, more from Josh and Chuck. So, um, this is, I, I would argue, I'm, I might cry at this part. When I was researching, I was crying, um, laughing. Yeah, this um, is good stuff. We have uh, one of our good friends here, Joe Randazzo. He edits The Onion, like we said. Um, and he he threw that been, away like it's no big deal. He, the, the <laughs> Onion. I'm, I've turned into a Frenchman. Yeah. Um, and he uh, he was so kind as to go through their 1783 edition, right, uh, and come up with some great headlines for us to share from the era, from the age. So, uh, everyone, please welcome Joe Randazzo. <laughs> hey, Joe. Hi. How Are you going to wear those? Yeah, yeah, I like it. Oh, Joe put on headphones, and now I feel naked. Why do you so feel You have your hat on. Huh? I've got nothing. That's true. <laughs> I have to say that last uh, segment. I was staving off a panic attack. Were you? It's a roller coaster ride. The ups and downs. And what is the American dream? Is it even achievable? Oh, I thought you meant because you were nervous. It was no, the, no, no, wow, no, 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 no. Wow, yeah, that nice. was terrible. Nice, awful. <laughs> terrible segment. So, um, how how did you end up panicked or? I don't know. I'm in the midst of it right now. We're going to see what happens. Well, well, take us through some of this. You, you guys have been uh, America's finest news source for how many years? Well, The Onion was founded in 1765 by Friedrich Zwiebel, who was a Prussian tuber farmer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the only words that he knew, I think this is right, Joe, were the and onion, right? It's mercantile and onion. Oh, mercantile and onion. So it was founded as the mercantile onion <laughs> um, with the express purpose um, of accumulating capital and fleecing its readers. All right. And that's um, spelled with a Y, right? O-N-Y? O-N-I-O-N. Oh, okay. No, I thought at the time, though, it was... No, you're way off base. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, so that was founded in 1765, and then the mercantile and the onion split in 1783, uh, and the onion has continued on since then independently, since 1783. So these are, these are um, articles from our 1783 edition, which is technically the first... Issue of the Onion as it as it's now known. Oh, okay. So they split in 1783. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, share with us some of the highlights of what was going on that year because it, it seemed to be a busy year from what I, what I was reading. Yeah, it was a busy year. You know, we we reissued this uh, in 2008. Um, so that's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. Where do you want to start? I mean, one thing that we like to do uh, in America today is read books, right? Am I right? Sure. Yes. <laughs> Oh, I forgot the line I wanted to say was uh, this amazing line. American dream, more like American night terror. <laughs> um, so this is just in, in this in October of, of 1783, these are the top 20 uh, best-selling books in print at present. Um, 
little se- section of the paper called Publisher's Corner. The 20 top most books in print at present. Number one's the Bible, nice. um, with 226,339 copies. Number two is Common Sense. Uh, the third most popular book is The Thousands Upon Thousands of the Mohicans. <laughs> <laughs> Seventeen Number four, The Return of Common Sense, Back to Basics. Uh, five, The Diary of a Woman Who Knew How to Write. Uh, number six, The Bible with a Red Cover. <laughs> number seven, The Plowman's Diet. Uh, the eighth top-selling book is The Book of Blank Pages. Uh, number nine is Leeches, a comprehensive tome of the known medical facts. <laughs> Ten, the Bible with the blue cover. Uh, the Gentleman of New Amsterdam. Twelve, God's Revenge Against Idleness, a children's book. <laughs> number thirteen, Guide to North American Jews. Uh, Fourteen, <laughs> the Bible, German edition. Uh, number fifteen, the Common Sense Three, it just makes sense. <laughs> Spelled with a C. It's a pun. Uh, 16, the lever and fulcrum for village idiots. Number 17, natural stillbirth. And uh, 18, 19, and 20 do not exist. There were only 18, there were only 17 books <laughs> in 1783. So that's a strong way to start, right? A list? That I think so. Yeah. <clears throat> Rattling them off. That you was, guys clap. Oh, you're going to get a for everything. For each one of these. What, what else is going on at the time, Joe Randazzo? Um, were there any of these uh, of interest that kind of uh, stood out to you? I have one. Yes? That I thought was pretty neat. The Surgeon General has added snuff to the tobacco pyramid. Yeah. <laughs> that was a, uh, a controversial move. Uh, everybody's familiar, of course, with the food pyramid, as I stall. Um, <laughs> but I'll just read a, a, a little excerpt from here. So this is, obviously this was written in 1783, the, the language is a little more kind of flowery and Baroque almost right. uh, than what we're used to now. Uh, so this reads, from our Baltimore cousins comes news of the felicitous health benefits of the powdered tobacco snuff and the recommendation that multiple pinches be taken until blood flows freely from the nose in service of balancing the humors. <laughs> Preeminent barber surgeon and former general of loyalist ilk, Thomas Haysworth has added the cure-all physic to his famed and most singular tobacco pyramid. The robustness chart learnt in grammar schools crossed the whole of our nation and has given snuff greater importance even than pipe smoke. <laughs> um, let's see. The measure of snuff suggested by General Haysworth to be most advantageous for children under six years of age is not to be in excess of four sizable nose packings per four and 20 hours <laughs> and taken always with two drafts of strong brandy. <laughs> Those unable to procure the finely ground tobacco should quaff freely from cuspidors at every opportunity to derive at least a little benefit from the meritorious effects of snuff. Excellent, sir. Obviously, snuff is no longer on the tobacco pyramid. So, so. <laughs> it took it off in the 70s. Anyway. Yeah. So, uh, Joe, one of the ones I ran across um, was the uh, – there was a, a woman who wandered out of her house, and they, they couldn't figure out what was going on. Yeah, she caused quite a stir. A mischievous woman wandered outside of home. The headline, the headline reads, uh, <laughs> mischievous woman wandered outside of home. Uh, I'll just read a little bit of this as well. The gentle town of Harrisburg was confronted with a most worrisome and shocking sight the day before last, one owing to the sudden appearance of wife and childbearer Margaret Cook from the interior of her home. 
Defying all reason, Cook was observed to exit into the open air. <laughs> Though no man had instructed her to do so, no domestic task required her to be out of doors, and no sign of suffocating fire had surfaced from her modest dwelling. Um, so she wandered around town, brought up quite a consternation, and then the last line of the story... Margaret Cook was reprimanded, disowned, and hanged until dead after returning to her place of residence. (laughs) (laughs) Tougher times. Uh, One that you alluded to earlier, it was foreshadowed. Yes. Um, Today we're all interested in sort of news of the weird and these peculiar news items from around the world. I think didn't the world's oldest person just recently die? Now there's a new oldest person (laughs) who's alive. That's a great thing about that list. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So this... um, the world's tallest man towers at 5 feet and 11 inches. <laughs> uh, should I read a little passage yes, from this um, From the honest and sworn captain of the bark Scylla, freshly returned from the Baltic, news of the existence of a modern Longshanks, a veritable <laughs> giant before whom many tremble. Said Pantragral, who makes his residence in the city of Danzig, reaches nearly 6 feet into the heavens. <laughs> At an astonishing 18 hands high, he is head and shoulders above even the loftiest of his brethren, and when striding, the thoroughfares of Danzig can be seen from 30 paces away. (laughs) So colossal is he that master carpenters cut a hole above his door and raised the portal to accommodate his great head. This Ajax sleeps in a specially fashioned bed so that his lower limbs do not dangle off the edge. His tailor keeps a stock one surplus bolt each of wool and muslin, should the Leviathan desire a new suit of clothes. To him, our daily bread is but mere crumbs. <laughs> the proprietress of an inn where the mammoth takes meals testified that he could devour one half of one one-hundredth of his weight in beefsteak in one sitting. <laughs> it is a further wonder that the floorboards of his house have not given way under his great heft, and that being estimated at nearly 12 stone or 165 pounds. Um, that's it. He's a giant. Yeah, 5 feet 11 inches. I've got one for you, Joe. We all love Ben Franklin, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, invented lightning. That's right. <laughs> and he invented a lot of things. And uh, from the historical archives, he invented so many things that they would actually print them week to week. Yeah, every week there was a feature, Ben Franklin Inventions This Week. That's right. And uh, uh, I will go ahead and read a couple of, of this week. I don't even know what week it was. This was, I think, the week of October 8th, 1783. Okay. He invented uh, the death kite. Mm-hmm. It's kind of neato. Uh, he invented uh, the carton device for conveyance of eggs to minimize breakage on even the most uneven of footpaths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. He uh, invented the U.S. patent. <laughs> Are these all appropriate to read on Children's Radio? I think the next one we shall not read. Okay. <laughs> Uh, he also uh, apparently that week invented power windows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the inflatable oblong balloon, the sort that emits a thunderous crap, one resembling sorry, a thunderous clap, one resembling the loud exhale from one's nether regions. <laughs> the whoopee cushion. Mm-hmm. Uh, maidenhead glue. Mm-hmm. I guess that one flies. Uh, and math. <laughs> and I love the last one. He invented being a great and pretentious old windbag. Yeah. Joe, do you have the um, the one about the amazing public spectacle? It seemed like a- almost an advertisement or like an upcoming event that uh, captured my attention. I do, Josh. And public is spelled with a K in yeah. this case. 
mm-hmm. that is right. <laughs> that's that's right, Chuck. <laughs> We'd love to hear I have it right here. I, I, no, I need to do this on my own. Yeah. So yeah, there, you know, people still needed their entertainment in in the 18th century. Sure. Um, so this was an amazing public spectacle. Indian taught to wear hat. <laughs> See the savage Mohican, who by grace of God and much patient training has been taught to wear a hat in the manner of an actual human. An amusing novelty for the public. <laughs> different times back then. Those were different times. Yeah. Can we scoff at Alexis de Tocqueville again? <laughs> Those were one of the best moments. Uh, I like this one a lot. Uh, this was uh, very important when a kidney bean-shaped organ recently discovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was by uh, chirosurgeons and bloodletters in Boston discovered an organelle of the body and that human excised from the back and muddled purple in color and very likely a kidney bean in shape, which removed, when removed, causes expiration as with all organs. As with all organs. <laughs> Oh, I found it. Here's the kidney bean one. <laughs> um, and then, you know, even then there was some, uh, you did the, the uh, podcast recently on, on Malthus, right, and mm-hmm. overpopulation. Sure. They were even worried about this in 1783, this um, sort of opinion piece. Will New York someday be too crowded for farming? <laughs> <laughs> An issue even more worrisome to experts is the reduced acreage of cleared forest available for farming within the city limits. Is a well-known fact that no urban community can survive without an agricultural base on which to found the city's infrastructure. Um, go go online and read it. It's really hilarious. Read silently to yourself. And then there was another one about New York, where um, the population was expected to to go over ten thousand. No, it had already reached twelve thousand. Oh, it had reached twelve. It was yeah. causing a lot of concern. Yeah, New York threatened by overcrowding as population climbs to twelve thousands. And that that had a companion piece, another worried one, um, where uh, it was urban sprawl, and then uh, there was only thirteen thousand acres of forest remaining on Manhattan Island. Right. <laughs> urban sprawling so severe, settlements cooking fires can be seen from as far as Greenwich Village. Yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's true today as it was back then, right? That's right. Yeah. You got you. You have anything else, Jeff? I was going to say a fact uh, from real from the real history of the world, which was uh, um, Stuyvesant was the original governor of New York, I believe. Okay. And when he was banished from New York, he went to retire uh, in his farm in the West Village. <laughs> That's where he went to like get away from everybody. <laughs> Was the West Village? Wow, and that's true. Only in yeah, New York. True. Yeah, only in New York. So thanks for coming by, Joe. Thanks for having me, Joe you. Randazzo. Thank you. And Chuck, do you realize what that means? We are out of bits. <laughs> yes, we're out of segments. I think that means that uh, you will be able to have a drink in your hand soon. Yes, which I know is something you've been looking forward to. Yes, all day. Sure, every day. All day, every day. Um, everybody, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. You can clap for yourself. We'll clap for you, too. You guys are great. Everybody out there listening uh, in your car right now, clap for yourself. But keep your elbows on the steering wheel while you do. So maybe everybody else in the car can clap for you, the driver. Yes, while you um, keep nine and three. It's not yeah. ten and two anymore. At home, you can clap. If you're listening to this in a shopping mall, clap. Everybody clap. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, and have a very safe Fourth of July. And when you when you see fireworks, remember sulfur is a reducing agent. Yeah. Don't throw smoke bombs at brittle trees. Right. The the American dream will never die, no matter what. And buggery is not only bestiality, but also sodomy. Thank you very much. Until next time, this was Stuff You Should Know. So, man, how fun is that? Wow. Yeah? Wow. <laughs> that was epic, monumental. Uh-huh. Um, it was okay. And it ran longer than I thought it would. I was worried about it lasting an hour, and it was like an hour and 45 minutes. Yes. Once we get Gabin, get a Gabin. Mm-hmm. It's hard to shut us up. Yes. It lasted 14 hours in full bladder time. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to say thank you to uh, all the fans who came. Yeah. What we like to refer to as the 50. Mm-hmm. Um, looked like everyone had a good time. It was good meeting folks. I saw uh, faces from the Brooklyn uh, trivia night. Yes. Saw some familiar faces. We got some bread. Uh, Chris Kine was there who did our two-headed uh, Josh and Chuck thing. He was the dude in the Ghostbusters Okay, sure. yeah, I saw that guy. But hey. he didn't come up afterward. Weird. I know. I was like, dude, what's your deal? That's really weird, Chris. <laughs> and uh, we met Coobs, Don Cooby. Yep, and you called her out. I called her out a little bit, which you heard. You humiliated her. <laughs> uh, we also want to thank uh, Wyatt Sinek and Hallie Haglin of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Mm-hmm. And I- thank The Daily Show for letting them do it. Yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah. So thank you. Thanks to uh, Jen over at The Daily Show for mm-hmm. helping us with that. Uh, and then all of our peeps at The Onion. The right? Joes and The Jill. Yeah. Thank you to all three of you. Yes. And a uh, big thanks to Paul from SiriusXM. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember our engineer's name that day. He was a really nice guy and says that he's a new fan. Oh, really? Uh-huh. And also Jeremy of mm-hmm. Sirius, who came to the show. Yeah. And he's a bigwig. Yeah, and he he, uh, he came by to see it. So thanks for all nice. that. Uh, thanks to Roxanne, our head of video, for helping us out up there. And special thanks to the video team mm-hmm. that we had assembled. Right. Fans that said, dude, we will shoot this in a professional fashion for free for you guys to put on your website. And every step of the way, you're like, well, you can use my camera. No, no. Well, you don't need to edit it. No, no. Well, it doesn't need to look good. No, no. So every step of the way, they've they've wowed and amazed and topped our expectations. Yeah, so we want to plug them for sure. That would be uh, uh, Martin uh, Laka Henson of Handcrafted by Martin. And you can see his work at www handcraftedbymartin.com right uh, his live-in gal he called his wife domestic partner <laughs> uh, Satoko Sugiyama and she was one of the main shooters and you can find her work at www.thepassagechronicles.com mm-hmm. and uh, finally they had one more shooter they had three cameras uh, and she did sound as well uh, Lari uh, Sumi who um you can find her work at www.lariesumi.com. L-A-U-R-I-E-S-U-M-I-Y-E. Very appropriate URL. Yes, and they did an awesome job, and we really can't say thanks enough. And you can find that video, look for it. We'll have it, we'll put it on Facebook uh, to point people to the website where you can watch this thing in pieces in full. Yeah, and thank you, uh, dear listener, for plodding through this thing with us. Uh, we hope it was worth it, and um, we'll be back to our regular scheduled podcasts next week. Uh, if you want to, as always, shoot us an email. Send that thing to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. 
Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?